There are so many things in our world that can cause us a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety. Uh, as Christians, this, this doesn't just go away uh, upon our conversion. Uh, among the things that, that can disturb us, uh, this would be unique to believers, um, but is the presence of false teachers and, and the, the leading people astray that we see and then people falling away from the faith as they follow after false teachers. And this can bother us, it can rattle us, it can disturb us, even shake our faith sometimes as we wonder, you know, how this can be. How can God let this happen? Uh, does this mean there's some deficiency in the faith if this kind of thing can happen? Uh, other, other things that can cause anxiety and fear, threats to our safety, threats to society posed by wars or by the, the threat of war, by natural disasters. Uh, these, are, these are all things that can cause fear that rattle many people in our society, sometimes even to our very core. Perhaps many of us even here um, are, are likewise shaken and, and unsettled by these potential things. While calmness in the face of these realities is not always automatic for Christians, it is something that, that Jesus nevertheless calls us to. He prepares us for these realities, and he tells us what to make of these things when we see them come to pass, when we see them happen. So as we continue in Luke today, in, in chapter 21 of Luke, uh, we're going to see that Jesus has prepared us. He's prepared his church for the troubling signs specifically of false teaching, of wars, and of various disasters. And he does this so that we might remain steadfast in our faith, so that we might remain unmovable. We might remain believing and trusting in him. Uh, at some point, in the process of parenting, uh, it's loving and right for parents to prepare our children for the difficult realities they will face in the world. At the appropriate time, we need to do this. So we do not want to send our kids out just completely naive of what it is that they're going to face. It's loving, it's good to prepare them by instructing them in some of the difficult things they'll face. And this is what the scriptures do for us in many places over and over. Uh, it, it, it instructs us about some of the difficult and heavy realities that we will face. And this is one of those places uh, where the Word does this for us. And so we're going to be focusing on verses 7 to 11 today in Luke chapter 21. Um, but I want us to read the whole chapter, well, starting in verse 5, because this is really one sermon uh, by our Lord, one discourse from Him. So we want to keep it together as a, a unit as we read it, and then... Over the next few weeks, probably four Sundays, we're going to be digging into this together. And so I'll invite you to read with me, starting in Luke 21, verse 5. The Word of God says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So that's the text we will focus on, but let's keep reading. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But... Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, stress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This passage is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, the reason for this is Matthew and Mark, in their uh, telling of this, this, uh, this sermon, they tell us that he delivered this as he sat down on the Mount of Olives. So you remember from previous weeks that the Mount of Olives was on just east of Jerusalem, across this Kidron Valley, there's this Mount of Olives, it's where the Garden of Gethsemane was, and so on. So that's where they are, Jesus sits down, he delivers this to them. It's a challenging uh, part of Scripture uh, that has uh, given way to various understandings of it, um, but in it, 
in this passage, Jesus deals with two main issues. Uh, the first one is the coming destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And the second one is his return, his second coming. And in Luke, in his version of it here, uh, in verses 8 to 24, it seems to clearly be dealing with uh, the lead up to Jerusalem's destruction, which we know occurred in the year 70 A.D. And then in verse 25, he then goes on to deal explicitly with his second coming, the coming of the Son of Man. And so if we just read Luke, we might conclude that verses 8 to 24, they were simply relevant to first century Christians, those who lived before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. Uh, he's talking about signs of the lead up to that event. And then starting in verse 25, we have teaching that is relevant to the whole church throughout history as he begins speaking now of uh, the second coming of the Lord and living in light of it, which is yet to be a future event as we know. Uh, however, uh, in Matthew and Mark, it is not so neatly divided as we find it in Luke. Uh, when you read Matthew, for example, there are times when it's unclear whether or not he's, whether, whether he's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, the historical event from the year 70 AD, or whether he's speaking about the final eschatological judgment uh, at his second coming. Uh, sometimes it's not clear. So, for example, when he's speaking of Jerusalem's destruction, it seems to be he's talking about this historic event. But then he goes on to say there will be a tribulation at that time, uh, such as has not been from the beginning of the world, no, and never will be. And so then you think, well, you know, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was bad, uh, but is that really an accurate description of that event? It seems that he's speaking of, of a yet even greater uh, destruction, a greater judgment yet. And so these two issues of the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple and this issue of Christ's return and the final judgment, these are dealt with simultaneously in this uh, discourse, this sermon by our Lord. And, and so here's, here's why I think this is the case. Here's how I think that we should understand it. The destruction of Jerusalem, while it was a unique historical event that has taken place in our past, in the year 70, uh, it nevertheless serves as a type or as a foreshadow of the final judgment that will come upon the world at Christ's return. That is to say, it, it also functions uh, symbolically of what will yet come. And so what is true then of the lead up to the judgment of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is also true, but on a much grander scale in the lead up to the return of the Lord Jesus and the final judgment. And so I think this is why uh, we see in Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and Mark especially this, this constant interweaving of these two things, this He's speaking of Jerusalem, and then he seems to be speaking of something much greater than the destruction of Jerusalem in the end times, because these two are related, and the one serves as a, as a picture of the, the other. In Luke, Jesus is simply asked, as we read in verse 7, uh, he simply asked, when will all these things be? Uh, these things, primarily, they're talking about the destruction of the temple. Jesus said, no, stir, no stone will be left. And now he's, he, they, they ask him, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? 
So they want to know, I think primarily, you know, when will this be destroyed? And, and what are the signs that this is going to take place? And Jesus answers this question of when Jerusalem will be destroyed and the signs that will take place. But he also goes on, of course, as we read, to speak of his return. Again, in Luke, clearly communicating that these two are related realities. Uh, additionally, if we were to, to look in Matthew's account in Matthew 24, there's an additional question asked of Jesus. He's, he's not only asked when the temple will be destroyed and the signs that, that before that happens, but he's also asked, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So it seems that the disciples, they believe that the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus is talking about and its temple is an eschatological or end times event. They see these two things as very much related in their minds. I think this would be a natural understanding for them. And, and the answer ultimately that comes from Jesus is that they are in fact separate events, but they are related events. The one serves as a precursor of the other, a picture of the other, a type of the other. And so again, what comes out clearly, I think most clearly in Luke, as we compare it with Matthew and Mark, is that the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of all things, they are indeed separate events, but the destruction of Jerusalem and the events, the signs that lead up to it, still serve as a type of Christ's return and the eschatological judgment. So as we see Jesus warn them of false teachers, for example, while he's speaking about the lead-up to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD, this also serves as a continual warning for the church, which will continue to face false teachers throughout the church's history. And we know, I think, safe to say from Scripture, that this will even increase It'll actually get worse prior to Christ's coming. You think of Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he talks about this great deception that's going to come upon the world and the rebellion that's going to take place prior to Christ's return. Um, this is how uh, the so-called so signs of the times function in Scripture. We've talked about this back when we, when we were in 2 Thessalonians. We talked about it. We talked through Revelation, for example, uh, on Wednesday nights when we were going through that. This is how the signs of the times work. They are present throughout the church history, but they will increase in intensity as we get nearer to the coming of Christ. So, for example, there are many antichrists, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. Many antichrists have already come, and yet he also tells us that the Antichrist is yet to come. So there are many coming now, these false Christs, and yet the ultimate Antichrist, end times figure, is yet to come. Or man of lawlessness, as Paul describes him in 2 Thessalonians 2. So likewise, there's a tribulation that is upon the world now, and yet it will be even more acute prior to the return of Christ. And that does include the church Going through this, we endure tribulation now and, and will right up until Christ returns. We see falling away happening now, but again, there will be that on an even grander scale before the return of Christ. I think 2 Thessalonians 2 also tells us this. So as we look at Luke 21, there's different reasons why uh, 
different purposes to all of this teaching. I think Harley helpfully pointed out last Sunday um, that Jesus has, we've seen that Jesus has condemned the temple a number of times. He has spoken of its coming destruction in a number of different places in Luke even. Uh, the temple and the twisted religious system of the Pharisees and the scribes embodied in the temple and what they've turned the temple into, this is now all condemned. And, and its end is to be destroyed. This is what Jesus has said. Uh, so the, the hope of humanity is now no, no longer to look to Jerusalem, to look to Jerusalem's temple. It's no longer to bring, uh, you know, to pilgrimage there and to bring sacrifices and offerings to that temple and to worship God in that place. It is in fact forsaken, Jesus has told us. We rather now, we, we, we come to God in the name of Jesus. We come and we worship Him in spirit and in truth through Christ Jesus. That's how we worship Him now. This temple, he says, is going to be destroyed. And as he is speaking of this and preparing his disciples for this, that's precisely what he's doing. He's preparing his people. He is preparing his first century disciples for this event, for the overthrow of Jerusalem. But he's also, this also serves as preparation for all of us, for all of his church throughout the age until his return. And he begins preparing by pointing us to signs that will take place, which signs of, of things that could be very troubling matters to us, but are nevertheless regular and ongoing events that are in fact He's calling us here uh, to not be troubled by these things as they are just really, he says, the beginning of birth pains, as he relates in, in Matthew and Mark. And so the three signs uh, are, that we want to look at uh, today in verses uh, particularly 8 through 11 are, are the presence of false teacher, wars, and disasters. And as he speaks of these things, he calls us to not be led astray, and he calls us to not be terrified, which is to say that Jesus prepares his church for the troubling signs of false Christs, wars, and disasters, so that we might remain steadfast. That's the goal here. That's the end of this, that we might remain calm, not be troubled and rattled by these things and shaken to our core, but that we might, in fact, remain steadfast in our faith. And so all of that, uh, just by way of introduction, um, but let's look at this first sign that he gives us here. So the first point of the outline, we are called to steadfastness in the face of false teachers. We see that especially in verse 8, but let's just look at verse 5 again. It says, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he speaks of these great stones, these noble stones. People are admiring this great temple. And the temple was a, a tremendous work, a tremendous structure. Um, if you think back to the temple had been destroyed before when the, the, uh, the, the Babylonians came and took the Jews away into exile... And then under Ezra, they returned and they began to build the temple. And if you remember, when they laid the foundation in Ezra, uh, those who had seen the, the temple of Solomon, when they saw the new foundations, they wept because it was not nearly as grand as Solomon's temple. But later in the time of Herod the Great, 
He put a lot of work into the temple, built it up, and it was indeed a magnificent structure. Um, there's a historian, and I'm going to mention him a few times today, but uh, by the name of Josephus, he was a Jew. He actually uh, led some of the Jewish forces in a rebellion against, uh, in the rebellion against the Romans uh, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. He was uh, captured, became a, a uh, an interpreter for the Romans, and then he wrote this history. He's kind of almost a bit of a traitor in the end, you might say. Uh, but he wrote a history that tells us a lot about this whole event of the destruction of Jerusalem, and. Uh, he tells us in his works that some of these stones, in one place he says they were as big as uh, 70 feet. Uh, another place says as big as 40 feet. Which one of those is accurate? Is he being a little bit, is he exaggerating a little bit? I'm not, we're not sure. But either way, what, the point is these are massive stones. These are impressive, noble stones. And so we would be there with these people being awed by this structure, this facility. And that's what these people are doing. They're amazed by this building, the offerings that are being brought into it. They're marveling at this. And yet Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. A little cold water on there, you know, rejoicing in this building. He said the building, it's, a, it's deceptive. What's going on inside, we've seen him cleanse it. It's, it's rotten. It's empty. So it's a religion that will not get you close to God. And this will be destroyed. Then in verse 7, they asked him, Teacher, when will, all these, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So Matthew identifies that this was in private. The disciples were the ones who asked Jesus this question. Mark identifies specifically Peter, James, John, and Andrew as the ones who asked Jesus this. So they, they, they want to know when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And again, I think these things that they're asking about also uh, implied in this would be the return of Christ and the end of the age, as these are connected issues, related issues in their mind. When is all this going to come upon us? When will all of this happen? And Jesus responds by telling them some of the signs that will take place prior to the temple's destruction. And the first one is the presence of false teachers. He says in verse 8, and he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So his exhortation is to see that you are not led astray. Do not go after them. That's what he's telling them to do. Be careful here. These people are those, he says, who come in my name. And then Jesus mentions two types of things they will proclaim. I am he, and the time is at hand. These are the types of things these false teachers, false Christs will proclaim. So to come in Jesus' name can mean a couple of things. It can mean to come in his authority, right? We pray in Jesus' name. We are coming to God, not on our own authority, not by our own merits, but in the name of Jesus, as we're coming to God. But if somebody comes in the name of Jesus, claiming his authority, to speak and proclaim what is false, right? They're a false teacher at that point. So they can't have that sense. But it can also mean claiming to actually be Jesus or claiming the title of Messiah, the title of Savior. To, to proclaim that the time is at hand, that's likely a reference to the end of all things, to the consummation of God's kingdom. So Jesus is warning about this, and in the first century, 
there were many who positioned themselves as messiahs. Exactly as Jesus said, this took place. Again, Josephus, this Jewish historian, mentions this, that there were those who came and were making false prophecies, claiming that God wanted the people to stay in Jerusalem as the Romans besieged it because God was going to deliver them. And they were claiming to be the ones that would help bring about this deliverance. And of course, he did not. They were actually proclaiming the exact opposite of what Jesus says the residents of Jerusalem should, should do in this very sermon, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And we see throughout the New Testament that this was a problem very early in the life of the church. Continually, throughout the scriptures, the people of God are warned about false Christs, warned about false teachers, false prophets. There were those who were claiming to be super apostles, coming in the name of, of Jesus, causing trouble for Paul and the Corinthians. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 11.5. There were the Judaizers in Galatia. There were the pre-Gnostics in 1 John. The empty philosophies and vain deceit being pushed in Colossae that is dealt with in the book of Colossians. In 1 John, again, I mentioned this earlier, he says it is the last hour, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. This is an issue right out of the gate for the church. False Christs, false teachers, false prophets, Antichrists, these are all nearly synonymous terms. In varying ways, they corrupt the gospel, they deny Christ Jesus, and they work in some cheap substitute. And some of these are more insidious and more maybe plausible sounding than others, but all of them dangerous. All of them to, we are to be on guard against, as Jesus warns here. Again, this is not a problem, not just a problem, leading up to the year 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, it was still a problem when the book of Revelation was written. When you think of the, the seven letters that begin the book of Revelation to the churches. Uh, there's warning throughout there of, of being on guard against false teaching of the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly sure what that was, but to be on guard against them, to be discerning. And it continues to be a problem throughout the church's history. And again, I think Paul indicates in 2 Thessalonians 2, it will be a major problem right before even the Lord Jesus himself returns. And so this can be, this presence of false teaching uh, can, can vex, I think, believers, vex sincere believers. We wonder at how this can be. We wonder why God would permit this to happen. Does this show some sort of flaw in what we believe, or some sort of flaw in the church, or some sort of weakness in God's plan, or, or somehow this undermines God's power and His redemption? It can be disturbing to us. But Jesus does not leave us floundering. He tells us, he prepares us in advance for this very reality, that this will happen. Some of us would like for it to not be the case, to just be naive and just pretend anyone who says anything in the name of Jesus is a-okay, as long as they're very sincere about it and seem like nice people. But the scriptures just don't give us that option. Jesus himself, his own words, it's, if you're... Bible's a red letter edition. It's in red. He tells us to not be deceived by them. It's a Christ-like thing to be discerning. 
Jesus has told us this over and over. He's warned us of this. He's told us the parable of the soils, showing that some will start out well, only to later fall away. He has told us there will be wheat, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And here again, he tells us that these things must occur. They will come in my name. It's going to happen. Now, Jesus does not tell us why exactly he allows this. Why exactly this is the case. He simply says it will happen. And then he tells us to be on guard and to not follow after these people. And so this is a call then for us to be discerning people. To be testing things with the word of God. And I think also this allows us, uh, and, and, and we should as a result of this, take some comfort when we do see false teachers and not panic as though this somehow undermines the credibility of the faith. Not at all the case. Jesus tells us this would, this would happen. We see this happening throughout church history. There was never a time when Jesus' words were not relevant to his followers. And then let us take up the challenge of building and training our powers of discernment that we might not be tossed by the waves of doctrine or caught up in deceitful schemes. We are to be steadfast in the face of false teachers, those who come in Jesus' name. Secondly, we are, to be, we are called to steadfastness at the rumblings of war. Look at verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. He says, when you hear of wars and tumults, in Matthew and in Mark, we hear, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, the word tumults refers likely to insurrections. The unstable, unsettled political situations giving way to violence, revolution, the chaos that comes with that. It goes on here, verse 10, to say that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Jesus says, when you hear of these things, do not be terrified. That's his word to us. Well, it's understandable why one might be terrified by these things. Why that might grip someone hearing of wars. War, of course, means death. War threatens our security, often leads to famine, so many other uh, difficulties and suffering. It means loss in so many ways, often accompanied by all manner of wickedness as armies pillage and, 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 and uh, you know, pillage everything. And yet Jesus says, do not be terrified. What is he, why? What's his grounds for this? Well, he says, for, this is why we should not be terrified, these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So I think if, if you're a Christian living in the first century, perhaps one scattered out from Jerusalem, and then you hear around the year 66, through to 70, you hear there's a, revol uh, a revolt taking place in and around Jerusalem, and the Jews are revolting against, uh, against the Romans, their occupiers, and there's war, there's battle, it's prolonged. 
And meanwhile, there's also supposed prophets standing up, making prophecies, and you're, you know, scattered from Jerusalem. This could be unsettling to hear of these things, to wonder, is the end happening now? Is, is, is the Lord coming? There's a lot of activity going on here that could be troubling. But Jesus is saying, these things must happen, but the end will not be right away. The end there being, I think, the eschatological end. It will not be at once. Moreover, it's not just war in and around Jerusalem. He says nation will rise against nation, kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be wars all over. Again, this is not just a first century phenomenon. It is throughout human history. And we know this. Notice that Jesus says that these things must first take place. It's a nice sentiment to want to banish war from the earth when people speak that way. But we can no more do that than we can banish sin from the world. We simply cannot, we simply will not. We wish war was not necessary. We wish we could end all wars. But we cannot do this. This will only happen when Christ himself returns and it makes all of his enemies at that time a footstool for his feet. This will not happen any sooner. We can certainly be against unjust wars. We can voice, uh, our, voice ourselves to that effect. Uh, we can help people in war-torn countries. These things are good, obviously. Uh, but we are not to be those who wring our hands over the presence of war in our world as though we are surprised or amazed or perplexed at why these things occur. Nor are we, as Jesus says, to be terrified when we hear of them. It is a sad reality of life in a fallen world, but it is reality that wars will come and they will go and new wars will follow as the old ones go. Now this, this might just seem really pessimistic, uh, but it's not. It's not just pessimistic. It's a realistic understanding of humanity and sin. And it is a reminder of, of what our duty is as a church. War is awful, it is disturbing, it is perhaps the worst or among the worst consequences of sin. And while we cannot stop it, the presence of war is a reminder of sin and the fact that it is the gospel that delivers from sin. And it is our, it is our primary mission as a church to then bring this message into the world. Moreover, while wars don't necessarily mean that the end is imminent, certainly in the first century, as Jesus is saying this, he says the end will not be at once, even as we hear of these things happening. Wars do remind us that it is only by Christ's return that war will cease. He is the one who will come and put an end to this. He will bring about justice. He will bring about ultimate, lasting peace in a renewed heaven and earth. The new heavens and new earth. 
Jesus tells us not to panic at the news of war. The point is, war will be a part of life on this planet. And so don't live in terror that the end of all things is upon us. Uh, we're not to be caught up in the hysteria about the end of the world when we hear of armies on the move. This is a, a reality, a difficult reality, though, that we, that we must come to grips with. The fact is, we live in a fallen world. And, and when we hear of wars, it is a reminder of just how fallen this world is. That that is what human beings do to one another. It's a sign of sinfulness, and it is a sign that this world is under God's judgment. And so we need not be shaken about why these things occur. They must happen, he says. Now this is not to deny the horrors of war. It's not that we are just to pretend that everything is just fine and war is somehow good or something like that. But it is given here that we might be settled, that we might be calm with an understanding of this fallen world that we live in and an understanding that the end of all things is ultimately in the Lord's hand. Even as we look out and grieve as we witness the effects of the world, we don't grieve as those without hope. We don't grieve as those who are totally at a loss for an explanation of our world. And as believers in the gospel, we know that if this came home, that though we die, yet shall we live. And so we are called to steadfastness at the rumblings of war. And thirdly and finally, we're called to steadfastness in the face of disasters. Look at verse 11. There will be earth, great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So this final category here of signs speaks of disasters and speaks of strange phenomena in the natural realm. Earthquakes, famine, and pestilence. These are all, again, terrible realities that bring suffering and death on the world. And once again, Jesus presents these to us uh, as things which will take place before Jerusalem would be destroyed and subsequently after as well. As with war, these are consequences, consequences which come from living in a fallen world. Creation itself, Paul tells us in Romans, is groaning. Remember, the curse didn't just extend to Adam and to Eve, but to the created order. Right? Thorns would now grow. Right? These, these disasters, this is all part of the curse. We live not only with fallen human beings, but in a, in a world that has fallen. And it's expressed, it's seen in these types of disasters that take place, like earthquakes. Exceptionally dry seasons producing famines, pestilences, or plagues that wipe out sometimes very large populations. Wipe out food production. Earthquakes that cause buildings to fall and cause tsunamis to rage. And again, it's a reminder, it's a sign that we are in a world that is under God's judgment. Jesus also mentions that there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. This is most likely speaking of natural 
or perhaps even difficult to explain phenomena in the sky. So people are quite superstitious when it comes to weather and when it comes to things that occur in the heavens, in the sky. Uh, back before the destruction of Jerusalem, again, Josephus tells us that there were indeed troubling things in the sky. Uh, he, he mentions there was a comet that was visible for a year. He mentions reports of many other things that happened, including one, uh, a star supposedly over Jerusalem in the shape of a sword. And exactly what they were seeing, exactly what was being reported, I don't know, but regardless, they're seeing these things in the sky, and they're trying to interpret these things to see what they mean. And some, Josephus even tells us of one man who said that these were all evidences that God was about to deliver Jerusalem. Of course, he was very, very wrong, as Jesus tells us here. We might think that, you know, in the 21st century, we're beyond trying to interpret strange phenomena, trying to interpret disasters, uh, you know, being rational scientific people and all. Um, but this is simply not true. And I'm sure you've noticed that our world is actually, in fact, obsessed with interpreting uh, the weather, interpreting natural disasters, natural phenomena. Consider the climate change activists. They've been predicting doom on the world, apocalyptic doom for centuries now, or for, for decades, I should say. And the dates keep having to get pushed back because all their prophecies proved to be failed prophecies. In fact, just 10 days ago, uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader in our own nation, tweeted, if humanity doesn't transition off fossil fuels before the next election, the earth will heat to unsafe levels and there will be climate catastrophe. When she was ridiculed for this, since the next election is in a couple months, uh, she walked it back saying obviously she was referring to the 2023 election. Regardless of whatever she's talking about, this sentiment is everywhere. If we don't do something now, disaster is right around the corner. How do we know this? There's fires. How do we know this? There's no rain. How do we know this? There's too much rain. It's too hot. It's too cold. Whatever is happening that's a disaster of some kind, it's evidence that we're at fault. And then this thinking that we can somehow stop these things from occurring if we just act a little bit different. We are not God. Jesus tells us these things will occur. They will continue to occur as long as the world spins. And I would suggest that destructive and strange or irregular natural phenomena, especially that which is potentially destructive and foreboding, things like large comets or whatever, they all serve to remind us, like war, again, that this earth is under a curse and that we live in a world that is under the judgment of God and that God will, in fact, one day bring it to bear. All of these things are precursors to that final day. God will not again flood the earth in its entirety, but these disasters are reminders, they are signs which point to God's judgment of sin and his wrath against sin. And so we cannot stop them altogether. We can build 
better buildings to mitigate the effects of earthquakes and so on. It's right for us to show compassion to help people who suffer as we all together live in this world that is cursed and deal with these kinds of disasters. But when these things occur, we need not wonder what they mean. They are signs which indicate divine judgment. I think this is made clear again in Revelation 6, which was read earlier in the service. Uh, There we read that these seals are opened by Christ, and then God pours out on earth. First it says, a a white horse conquering, which I would suggest is, is a false gospel going out and conquering. Jesus later comes on a white horse. This is a cheap imitation. A red horse brings war, a black horse and a pale horse bring inflation, famine, war, pestilence. Sounds familiar. And then it all culminates in earthquakes and terrors in the heavens before the final day of the Lord. This is not something, these are not realities that are reserved simply for a seven year period after we are thankfully out of the way. Such tribulation led up to the destruction of Jerusalem and it continues while the earth turns. And when we see these things happen, we are reminded that we live in a cursed world. We are reminded that the only hope is Christ. The only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only end to this ultimately is when the Lord Jesus returns. In Matthew and in Mark, in their versions of of this uh, Olivet Discourse, uh, these signs of false Christs, of wars, and disasters are called the beginning of birth pains. So just as the, the early, uh, earliest birth pains are a sure sign, a sure indication that a baby is eventually on the way, so too these things assure us that God's judgment is surely and certainly coming. That's what Jesus means by this, these as signs. As we see these things, it is a reminder and a a, a certainty that, that God will bring about judgment on this world. And I think this serves, first of all, should cause us to first um, be sure that we are right with God, that we are looking to Christ, the only hope for the forgiveness of our sins, lest we fall under that judgment when the Lord Jesus returns. Confessing our sin seeking forgiveness in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, his dying for sinners. But further, this also serves to keep us focused on that which is most important for us as a church, for Christians. I think this is why Jesus, well, he he says it even in the passage we just looked at, to, to not be led astray, to not go after false Christ. And then he ends his sermon in verse 34 and following with a call to watchfulness, to be on guard, to not be weighed down in dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of the world, but to remain on our toes, so to speak, as we're seeing these things happen, knowing that, you know, being reminded, being snapped out of our, you know, days as we forget and we start to live for ourselves and the things of this world that know there's a much greater reality that we are to live by faith. And then ultimately, of course, as a church, to keep our focus on our mission to take the gospel to people. 
to share the good news of Christ, that the only way of escape from God's wrath for sin is through the shed blood of Christ. None of these things are to be surprising to us when they occur. We, we don't know. We're not given specific reasons why one person dies in an earthquake while another does not. We're not, we're not told the secret plans of God and secret inner workings of God as to why one person is born in a war-torn country and another person is born in a society that has relative safety to it. We don't, we don't know those kinds of whys, but we do know generally why these things occur. Sin has entered the world through Adam and it has spread to all men and women and even to the created order. And it should keep us focused on the solution, again, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who has come to redeem all who trust in him from our sin and from the consequences of sin. And one day the Lord will return. He will put his enemies under his feet and he will consummate his kingdom where his redeemed will forever be with the Lord and the curse on earth will be turned back, rolled away, and we will dwell forever with God in the new heavens and new earth. And the result will be, therefore, a situation that is even greater than what we read about uh, at the beginning chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And this is where we are to rest. Uh, this is our message to the world while we live out our days on this side of Christ's return in a world that is still, in fact, torn by sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you prepare us. Thank you that you don't leave us naive. God, there are many things we don't understand, many whys we don't know, and that you don't reveal to us. But these are truths you have revealed. Father, I pray that we would be those who who remain steadfast, that we would be discerning, that we would remain true to what your word teaches, true to the gospel, true to your son, Jesus Christ, that you would guard us and keep us. And Father, we pray that we would also be those who are unafraid, who are able to face even the prospects of death with confidence. Not a cockiness, but a confidence that you are good, and the confidence that what your word says is true. Father, I pray that you would use these words in your, your scriptures to encourage your people, to strengthen us even for the day ahead. And as we look out and see all kinds of craziness go on in our world and all kinds of wickedness, I pray that we would, we would understand that this is a reminder of this fallen world we live in. It is, a, it is a, a sign that you will surely come in judgment and that we would warn others and that we would press in close to know you and that we would hold very loosely uh, to the things of this world, even the good things that you've given to us. And we recognize you've given us many good provisions. So Father, we just we praise you, we thank you. You are good to us more so than we possibly fathom and understand. 
and we just pray for your help as we live out these days in this fallen world and as we anticipate the return of Christ. So we pray all this together in Jesus' name. Amen.